Welcome to The Politocrat. I'm Omar Moore. It is Wednesday, January the 13th, 2021. Seven days was all she wrote. Kind of ultimatum note she gave to me. She gave to me. Seven days. Sting. Seven days until the inauguration of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. It's getting closer and closer. But are you getting happier and happier? Or are you becoming more and more nervous? Seven days from today. On this episode of The Politocrat... I'm going to be looking at some very important things that have happened here since the last episode that I did, which was just yesterday. Lisa Montgomery is top of mind. That's where I will start. Welcome back. This episode is an episode that you will find distressing. I think many people listening will find it difficult to sit with some of the things that I'm going to say on this episode. I do want to warn you in advance about that. You may find what I am saying disturbing. There are actually some things that I was going to say but I decided not to because I just think they're way too distressing and probably give some of you sleepless nights that you don't need to have. So I'm going to keep that promise and not disclose some other things that I think are just absolutely too much to handle. Um, Even for someone like myself, I thought, oh my goodness, do I really want to um, mention this on an episode? Um, I know I say that this is not scripted, and it is not scripted. But it's not to say that I don't take real measure of some of the information that is disclosed here. Because I think um, you have to be responsible, obviously, for what you say. And you have to be responsible about the sources that you say it and obtain it from and make sure that those sources are correct and that they are not just wild allegations or conspiracy or lies and propaganda. And I strongly believe that where you are clearly speculating, then you say so. I mean, that's what you must do. That's the least of what you should do for the listener if you respect the listener. And I think that that is important. And I respect you. And it's important to just warn you that you may find this episode and some of the descriptions that I will be providing in this episode to be disturbing. 
So please exercise some discretion. And if you find that um, this is a bit too much, I completely will understand. But I am just issuing that warning right now. And I'm going to start with a distressing story. I'll give you a moment to think about what you would like to do. And then I'm going to start with this distressing story. Last night, the United States carried out its first execution of a female inmate in nearly 70 years. 1953 was the last time that the United States of America executed a female inmate. Lisa Montgomery was murdered by the state of Indiana late last night. Or I should say, really, if you look at it, early this morning, because it was central time. I believe Indiana is in the central time zone, although, you know, Indiana, at least parts of Indiana, do not change their clock um, when they do the two changes of the clock backwards and forwards every year. So I don't know um, where exactly the time zone was, but it certainly was east, further east, obviously east of here um, as uh, being on the West Coast. But the point of the matter is, is that early this morning, Lisa Montgomery, just 52 years of age, young, was executed. And as I say, I say murdered by the state of Indiana and by the United States Supreme Court, which hastened her murder, and by Donald J. Trump, who is on a mission here in this final week that he has in office to kill, it seems, as many people as he possibly can, if not with his bare hands, with his raw and dangerous power. Lisa Montgomery was from Kansas, and... She should still be here with us. I am going to read you the story from the Associated Press. And it will be graphic and it will be disturbing, I think, for some, if not all. But I think as disturbing as the detail that I'm going to read you is the fact that the state of Indiana carried out this execution to begin with as well. It's highly, highly heinous. And I think that the state should no longer be doing this. There has to be a better way. There must be a better way. It's more expensive to do this. It's costing taxpayers. And it's sanctioning murder and doing so in the most crude and reprehensible of ways. 
We are literally a killing machine. And that is not good. That does not bode well for us. And that's been the case for centuries. Do you think we're going to change? Or are we going to keep doing this? Where we are executing, assassinating people who we could just as easily keep behind bars for much less money. And hopefully those individuals somehow can reform and re-educate themselves and be given some kind of second chance. The dateline for this story is Terre Haute, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, Indiana. I'm going to read this entire story. And I warn you again that it is graphic and it may be distressing to you. A Kansas woman was executed Wednesday for strangling an expectant mother in Missouri and cutting the baby from her womb. The first time in nearly seven decades that the U.S. government has put to death a female inmate. Lisa Montgomery, 52, was pronounced dead at 1.31 a.m. after receiving a lethal injection at the federal, federal prison complex in Terre Haute, Indiana. She was the 11th prisoner to receive a lethal injection there since July, when Donald Trump, an ardent supporter of capital punishment, resumed federal executions following 17 years without one. As a curtain was raised in the execution chamber, Montgomery looked momentarily bewildered as she glanced at journalists peering at her from behind thick glass. As the execution process began, a woman standing over Montgomery's shoulder leaned over, gently removed Montgomery's face mask, and asked her if she had any last words. No, Montgomery responded in a quiet, muffled voice. She said nothing else. She tapped her fingers nervously for several seconds. A heart-shaped tattoo on her thumb showed no signs of distress and quickly closed her eyes. As the lethal injection began, Montgomery kept licking her lips and gasped briefly as the pentobarbital, a lethal drug, entered her body through IVs on both arms. A few minutes later, her midsection throbbed for a moment, but quickly stopped. Montgomery lay on a gurney in the pale green execution chamber, her glasses on, and her grey fish or greyish brown hair spilling over a green medical pillow. At one thirty AM, an official in black gloves with a stethoscope walked into the room, listened to her heart and chest, then walked out. She was pronounced dead a minute later. The craven bloodlust of a failed administration was on full display tonight. Montgomery's attorney, Kelly Henry, said in a statement, Everyone who participated in the execution of Lisa Montgomery should feel shame. The government stopped at nothing in its zeal to kill 
this damaged and delusional woman, Henry said. Lisa Montgomery's execution was far from justice. It came after hours of legal wrangling before the Supreme Court cleared the way for the execution to move forward. Montgomery was the first of the final three federal inmates scheduled to die before next week's inauguration of President-elect Joe Biden, who is expected to discontinue federal executions. But a federal judge for the District of Columbia halted the scheduled executions later this week of Corey Johnson and Dustin Higgs in a ruling Tuesday. Johnson, convicted of killing seven people related to his drug trafficking in Virginia, and Higgs, convicted of ordering the murders of three women in Maryland, both tested positive for COVID-19 last month. Montgomery killed 23-year-old Bobby Joe Stinnett in the northwest Missouri town of Skidmore in 2004. She used a rope to strangle Stinnett, who was eight months pregnant, and then cut the baby girl from the womb with a kitchen knife. Montgomery took the child with her, and attempted to pass the girl off as her own. An appeals court granted Montgomery a stay of execution Tuesday, shortly after another appeals court lifted an Indiana judge's ruling that found she was likely mentally ill and couldn't comprehend she would be put to death. But both appeals were lifted, allowing the execution of the only female on federal death row to go forward. As the only woman on federal death row, Montgomery had been held in a federal prison in Texas and was brought to Terre Haute on Monday night. Montgomery's legal team says she suffered sexual torture, including gang rapes as a child, permanently scarring her emotionally and exacerbating mental health issues that ran in her family. At trial, prosecutors accused Montgomery of faking mental illness, noting that her killing of Stinnett was premeditated and included meticulous planning, including online research on how to perform a C-section. Henry balked at that idea, citing extensive testing and brain scans that supported the diagnosis of mental illness. She said the issue at the core of the legal arguments are not whether she knew the killing was wrong in 2004, but whether she fully grasps why she is slated to be executed now. U.S. District Court Judge James Patrick Hanlon, who had halted Montgomery's execution before the state was overturned on appeal, cited defense experts who alleged Montgomery suffered from depression, borderline personality disorder, and post-traumatic stress disorder. Montgomery, the judge wrote, also suffered around the time of the killing from an extremely rare condition called pseudosiasis, in which a woman's false belief she is pregnant triggers hormonal and physical changes as if she were actually pregnant. 
Montgomery also experiences delusions and hallucinations, believing God spoke with her through connect-the-dot puzzles, the judge said, citing defense experts. The government has acknowledged Montgomery's mental illness issues, but disputes that she can't comprehend that she is scheduled for execution for killing another person because of them. Details of the crime at times left jurors in tears during her trial. Prosecutors told the the jury Montgomery drove about 170 miles, 274 kilometers, from her Melbourne, Kansas farmhouse to the northwest Missouri town of Skidmore under the guise of adopting a rat terrier puppy from Stinnett. She strangled Stinnett, performing a crude caesarean and fleeing with the baby. Prosecutors say Stinnett regained consciousness and tried to defend herself as Montgomery cut the baby girl from her womb. Later that day, Montgomery called her husband to pick her up in the parking lot of a long John Silvers in Topeka, Kansas, telling him she had delivered the baby earlier in the day at a nearby birthing center. Montgomery was arrested the next day after showing off the premature infant, Victoria Joe, who is now 16 years old and hasn't spoken publicly about the tragedy. Prosecutors said the motive was that Montgomery's ex-husband knew she had undergone a tubal ligation that made her sterile and planned to reveal she was lying about being pregnant in an effort to get custody of two of their four children. Needing a baby before a fast-approaching court date, Montgomery turned her focus on Stinnett, whom she had met at Dog shows. Anti-death penalty groups said Trump was pushing for executions prior to the November election in a cynical bid to burnish a reputation as a law and order leader. The last woman executed by the federal government was Bonnie Brown Hedy on December the 18th, 1953 for the kidnapping and murder of a six-year-old boy in Missouri. The last woman executed by a state was Kelly Gissendainer, 47, on September 30, 2015, in Georgia. She was convicted of murder in the 1997 slaying of her husband after she conspired with her lover, who stabbed Douglas Gisendana to death. What a sad, horrific, and deeply distressing story. I remember this when it actually happened nearly 20 years ago. I do remember this. She had driven hundreds of miles. I remember that. Oh, well, well whatever the mileage was here. Um, here. I mean, she drove a long way um, to uh, do this. And I remember this very well, this case. 170 miles. Yeah. I mean, she, she drove a long way to, uh, 
to to do what she did. And yes, it was heinous what she did. Yes, it was um, evil what she did. But do two wrongs make a right? Now, I'm not a death penalty proponent. I will make that very clear to you. And I certainly think that what she did to Kelly Joe Stinnett was evil and heartless and heinous and should be met with a severe prison sentence, but not being put to death. That will not bring back... I don't know if I can continue with this one. I mean, it won't bring, it will not bring. You know, these kinds of stories are not easy to talk about because there are people listening who, you know, I know people who've had miscarriages. I know people who've lost children, you know, And they could well be listening to me right now. Ah, dear. I'm going to post a link to that. There's a fairly large photo of uh, Montgomery. Who should still be here with us. And um, this is... This is sad. It makes me angry. And because Donald Trump is a coward. He's a coward. And he loves blood and he loves violence. Even though he won't participate in violence, he won't go and fight for the country overseas. He won't go and fight for the United States. But he will allow and have people to kill in the name of the United States or for the United States. He is the laziest kind of individual and the most disgusting. I'll put a link to that story again. As I said, the U.S. carries out first execution of female inmate since 1953. That's a federal execution in the state of Indiana, which still has some responsibility. But again, it's a federal execution. So it's Donald Trump and the U.S. Supreme Court that rubber-stamped this. Lisa Montgomery should still be here with us. The House will impeach Donald Trump and make it very clear that this is not going to be tolerated and send that message to the country, the world, and of course to any future president that we are not going to back down. We are going to punish you. And the House is going to do that. By the time you listen to this, they will have done it. There will be debate today. You have probably seen the debate And there will be the vote today. You have probably had occasion to look at some of that. As today is the day for impeachment, it will happen. And it has happened for those of you who come upon upon this podcast after 
the fact. Donald Trump becomes the first person in the White House to have ever been impeached twice. He was impeached on December the 18th, 2019. And he was impeached again today, Wednesday, January the 13th, 2021. Twice in the space of just over one year. I mean, twice in a, what, 13 months period? I mean, 13 months in under 13 months. Think about that. In under 13 months, Donald Trump has been impeached twice. This guy should never have got this far. And the truth is that the only reason he's gotten this far is, one, he's a white male. Two, the system enabled him and the system represents him. The system is him. And three, had this been a black man, black woman, and even in, to some degree a white woman, they would never have got this far, ever, ever. I do think it's necessary to revisit that fact. I mean, by just stating it, really. It's, it's an obvious one, but it is one that, you know, that statement that I make is the truth. We all know that's truth. That's the truth. Next week, I am very confident that Donald Trump will be removed and he will be removed by a Senate vote to convict him. The Republican Senate, which is in its last few days of enjoying control, will absolutely put the kibosh on Donald Trump. And never mind the fact that he will probably already have left by then. If you don't think that Removal of Donald Trump or anybody in that position has some kind of lasting effect. Removal in the Senate. If you don't think that that means anything, even after the guy has left office, you're absolutely mistaken. And that, I think, is what you're going to see when this trial happens. It's probably going to happen after the 20th. Now, I wish it happened before. But I think what's going to happen is that it's going to happen afterwards. And that's when you're going to see these Republicans in the Senate absolutely vote to convict him. There's no pressure on them at that point. But the point is, they will have done it. And the point is, is that that would have been the message sent. Finally, almost a year after voting to acquit him. And I believe that a lot of those people, or at least some of them, more of the traditionalists in that party and the moderates in that party are going to reverse or try to atone 
for what they, the dastardly things they did 11 months ago by voting to acquit him. Mitt Romney doesn't have to worry about that because he was the only Republican who voted to convict Donald Trump of abuse of power. So that's the scenario. And I think that is what you're going to see happen in the next week or so once this guy has actually left the White House. He's still going to be removed. I mean, even though he's gone, there is nothing um, anticlimactic about that, actually, because this is very important that this gets done. And I think that more and more of the traditionalists and the moderates in that party in the Senate on the Republican side will actually do this. I said this last week. And I'm saying it again this week, and I will say it again next week until I am proven wrong. But I do think I will not be proven wrong. I do think that you will be able to find 20 senators as opposed to 11,780 votes, Donald Trump, who will end up removing Donald Trump and convicting him in that way. And you'll have that. You'll have that with Mikowski who has made it very clear. You'll have it with Romney, who has made it very clear. Pat Toomey, who's made it very clear. That's three. Ben Sass has been entertaining this. He's likely to. That's going to be four. Um, even though, of course, they all these people voted to, uh, except for Mitt Romney, to uh, quit Donald Trump last time around. Um, you're going to have more. You're going to have more Republicans. I mean, if you already have five Republican House members... And I'm sure there's more of those, or there were more of those, voting to impeach. You're going to have, on the more genteel and more traditionalist Senate, you're going to have many more Republicans. I think you'll find the 17. I don't think that's going to be a problem. You will start to see that news come out over these next few days to gear up and ready people for it. Not that they have to be. They wanted this yesterday, most of the people in this country. One more thing I want to get to really quickly before I turn the page and start a new segment um, in a few moments is this attack a week ago today, this terrorist attack was a terrorist attack, not just on the seat of government. It was a terrorist attack on us as people in this country. It was a terrorist attack on we the people. And I'm not so sure, and I haven't been watching the news in the corporate news media. Of course, I love to trumpet that here. Oh, God, the word trumpet. I love to salute that here. Not that anybody cares except myself, but I have not been watching. But I wonder if there's been any conversation amongst pundits about that. That this was also a terrorist attack against us, we the people. They were attacking the democratic will of the voters, 81 million plus of us. They were attacking the will of all of the voters as made clear through the certifications of the votes by the states and through the electoral colleges. Abolish the electoral college. These terrorists were attacking us, all of us. Obviously, the attack was foisted on the Capitol building, but... Still, that was an attack on us. For better or worse, we voted those people into office. 
So without our consent and our vote, none of those individuals who were conducting business a week ago today would be in office. And yet what was happening last week, and I don't think this has been reflected appreciably in at least some of the news stories I'm reading online, is that this was an attack on the people. This was an attack on us as voters. This was a violent attack on us as voters. I mean, no, granted it wasn't 1963 or 64 or 65 with dogs being sicked on us as black people. It wasn't that. However, it still was pretty darn serious. And when you've got police being stomped to death or beaten to death with American flags... I mean, this, this is really something that um, people have to consider. This was an attack on us as people, as voters. An attack on an institution as well. That's the next portion of this particular episode. Coming up right after this. So here is an excerpt from Timothy Snyder's book on tyranny. Defend institutions. It is institutions that help us to preserve decency. They need our help as well. Do not speak of our institutions unless you make them yours by acting on their behalf. Institutions do not protect themselves. They fall one after the other unless each is defended from the beginning. So choose an institution you care about, a court, a newspaper, a law, a labor union, and take its side. We tend to assume that institutions will automatically maintain themselves against even the most direct attacks. That was the very mistake that some German Jews made about Hitler and the Nazis after they had formed a government on February 2nd, 1933, for example, a leading newspaper for German Jews published an editorial expressing this mislaid trust. We do not subscribe to the view that Mr. Hitler and his friends, now finally in possession of the power they have so long desired, will implement the proposals circulating in Nazi newspapers. They will not suddenly deprive German Jews of their constitutional rights, nor enclose them in ghettos, nor subject them to the jealous and murderous impulses of the mob. They cannot do this because a number of critical factors hold powers in check, and they clearly do not want to go down that road. When one acts as a European power, the whole atmosphere tends towards ethical reflection upon one's better self and away from revisiting one's earlier oppositional posture. Such was the view of many reasonable people in 1933, just as it is the view of many reasonable people now. The mistake is to assume that rulers who came to power through institutions cannot change or destroy those very institutions, even when that is exactly what they have announced that they will do. Revolutionaries sometimes do intend to destroy institutions all at once. 
This was the approach of the Russian Bolsheviks. Sometimes institutions are deprived of vitality and function, turned into a simulacrum of what they once were, so that they gird the new order rather than resisting it. This is what the Nazis called Lishaktun. It took less than a year for the new Nazi order to consolidate. By the end of 1933, Germany had become a one-party state in which all major institutions had been humbled. That November, German authorities held parliamentary elections without opposition and a referendum on an issue where the correct answer was known. To confirm the new order, some German Jews voted as the Nazi leaders wanted them to in the hope that this gesture of loyalty would bind the new system to them. That was a vain hope. That's from the book On Tyranny by Timothy Snyder. That's chapter two I was reading from called Defend Institutions. And that's exactly what's happened. It's a very important book. You've got to read it. Um, I'll put a link to it as well. You've In the line of notes, you've got to read that book. Very important, about 90 pages. It's a book that's very important. It was written um, just at the time Donald Trump was entering office in the White House or thereabouts anyway. And Timothy Snyder, the, the professor there of Yale who studies um, Europe and Eastern Europe and, and all things like this. Um, he's based in Vienna, I believe. He's someone who, uh, among others, is really important here. Um, Ruth Ben-Giat, who I've had on this podcast, if I didn't mention it earlier, um, has been a guest here twice. And she's got a book out called Strong Men, which I highly recommend as well. So I'll put a link to that book as well. Um, Ruth is um, has been here and she talks about this. Um, uh, and it's just, uh, I think she's invaluable, absolutely invaluable um, to explaining this and doing it in a way that the average person can understand. I mean, she's, um, I think she's really important to this too. There are others, but I, I think of her in particular, because she um, has um, provided uh, a lot of clarity on this. And again, in a way that is very uh, clear and decipherable uh, and easy to uh, follow. I mean, she's somebody who um, talks to you, you know, um, not at you or down to you. Um, and, I, and I really respect that about her and, and her expertise, of course. I mean, this goes without saying uh, on these on these subject matters that she's written about and done work on for a long time. So the point is here is that institutions are important. Now, of course, there are ones, you know, we've got institutions that oppress us too, right? So those ones we want to get rid of, those ones we want to change, those ones we want to overthrow in a way, you know, get rid of, for lack of a better word. Um, but ones like voting, that's one we need to support. And we need to change that too. Um, but we need, you know, and I think the House and Senate that are going to be in Democratic hands soon are vehicles, but we have to put pressure on them to change these things. And we have to consolidate these institutions of voting by voting, by participating. And that's how we do it, we the people. So that's what Snyder's talking about. Pick an institution. Well, mine is voting. And of course, I had been going on and on um, this past year about the importance of us getting out to vote early. And if, the, if we went out and voted early in droves, 
we would absolutely win. And that proved to be correct. That proved to be right. And this happened again just last week in Georgia. Um, Voting early is going to be the key in all of these elections now. And there must be a move made in all these legislatures to have early voting a permanent fixture, not just in a pandemic that we're going through, but when this pandemic finally begins to subside, that that must continue to be the order of the day to vote early, give people the flexibility. If we are in a so-called free and so-called democratic, small d democratic society, then act like it, you know, give people the mechanisms to vote when they can, instead of forcing them to be shoehorned into ridiculous and unrealistic voting situations that will be impossible for them to meet, thereby voter suppressing them. So we need, that's the institution where we have a voice. That is really the one where we have a voice to change things with our vote. It's powerful, powerful. But in that passage I read to you, Snyder talked about, Professor Snyder talked about the people who wanted to uh, have the new order undergirded. And he's talking now, at least back in 2017 to 16 when he wrote this, he's talking, he's referring now to the 2021 Republicans. The 147 of that group who wanted to overturn and who called to overturn the results of the people, the will of the people. They know better. They know that these elections were above board. They know that. This was an absolute coup happening right before your eyes on your TVs. That's what was going on, folks. That's what was going on. Each and every one of those 147 Republicans. And that's including House and Senate, both. 147 total, right? They knew that these elections were fine. This is a complete excuse for them to be the tyrannical, unpatriotic traitors that they are and seditionists that they are. I mean, there's been this push before. Remember in 2015 when Tom Cotton, the senator, the Republican out of uh, Arkansas, had the 47 traitors letter? People forget that now. Six years hence. And when that letter to Iran was saying, hey, you know, um, President Obama, well, you know, there's some congressional elections and a presidential election coming. And, you know, you really shouldn't negotiate with him. And this is on the arms treaty deal. You shouldn't vote. You shouldn't negotiate with him because there's going to be. And they sent that letter to the Iranians. The Iranians ignored it, thankfully. And they were able to hammer out a deal with Obama. And then, of course, all that got scuttled when Trump came in. But that was yet another example. And 46 other Republican senators, including Mitch McConnell, including John McCain, signed on to that 47 traitors letter. Every now and again, I come across the letter and I need to bookmark it so that I can put it in an episode. And if I come across it, I will include it so that you can read that letter and also see all the signatures of the 47 Republican senators known as the 47 traitors who joined Tom Cotton. And don't think that Tom Cotton isn't going to run in 2024. 
I'm telling you. But that's an attack on an institution. That's an attack on the executive branch of government by members of the legislative branch. Republican members. So the Republicans have been hard at work over these last 60 years doing this. There are other instances of this too. You know, even in that same year or thereabouts, when Republicans invited Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu Netanyahu to come to the House of Representatives. At the time, Paul Ryan was the Speaker of the House. At the time, President Obama was in the White House. And the House of Representatives and Speaker Paul Ryan never, ever told President Obama or anybody in the executive branch that they were inviting Netanyahu to speak and never told anybody that he would be in the House of Representatives on the House floor to speak. And so Obama found out about it when we all found about it, out about it, when he was literally speaking Netanyahu on the House floor. And that is not theirs to do. They are supposed to consult with the executive branch when you are inviting a world leader to speak, a leader of a foreign country, because of course that invites a lot of national security issues potentially. So the Republicans have been at this for 60 years in terms of trying to destroy institutions and bend them to the most richest people in the country. I mean, oligarchs are running the place anyway. I mean, let's be really honest. But what you're seeing now is a, a fascism that has always been here. And you're seeing tyranny and treason and sedition an insurrection. You've got people in Congress now, these 147, who, you know, they're going to go down in flames with all of this. But once Donald Trump is out the way in the next few days, they're going to continue to do this. They're going to continue to rally and stir up these violent mobs. And I think that that's what people have to watch out for, um, because that's going to continue. And that's where my... Uh, Next segment is going to start, the final segment, which is going to be probably the most dire one. Let me warn you now. Again, this is unscripted, so it's not like I know exactly um, what I'm going to say when, but I'm going to say it. And it will make you, I think, uncomfortable. You have been warned. Welcome back. So one of the ways to defend institutions is to participate in them. Uh, you know, people running for Congress, people um, running to change the voting system and solidify it and improve it. Those are ways you can do that. And I think voting is such a key. It really is. And also to constantly participate in these elections. That's how you do it as well. And activate people, organize them, help them, help them vote, educate people to vote. You know, be someone who does um, do what Black Voters Matter has done through the great work of Latasha Brown and uh, Cliff Albright and others, um, which is to raise awareness about voting and, and make sure that black people are fully informed and educated on voting and their rights and being able to vote. And also 
um, the work that Stacey Abrams has done with Fair Fight Action, her organization Fair Fight, and the great work she's done. I mean, and, and others too, many others. That's what, the, that's what this is going to be about when I talk about defending institutions, and Tim Snyder talked about it there as I read to you the excerpt in the last segment. That's what I mean. That's what I mean. The people, and also the people on the inside, like the, the Raffenspergers. Again, he's been no friend to black people. I, I can tell you that. Um, but he stood firm when he had to do so. And he's got to keep doing so. Whether it's Trump or anyone else, he's got to stand firm. And that goes for anyone else. People in Pennsylvania have to do that. I know that the Republicans there uh, are an utter disgrace. But in Georgia, they were not. Um, you know, they weren't. So, you know, even the Wisconsin Supreme Court um, stood up when they had to. And these courts where they had Trump judges in them stood up and stood firm and rejected these dog and pony lawsuits that were frivolous and really should have resulted in Rule 11B sanctions against these attorneys. If I put a case in like this, I would have been disbarred. I would have been sanctioned. Rudy Giuliani, of course, was able to go in there over and over again and admit that there was no fraud, yet put a lawsuit out there and not have his bar license removed, not have his license revoked. Oh, we're revoking his membership. That's how deep power runs, right? When you can't even get rid of someone like this in terms of his law license. He should be disbarred, period. I want to get now to what we are seeing here with these seven days left. And there are all kinds of violent things being planned in this country. And I did warn you that this segment was going to be one of those, along with one of the others that you heard earlier, um, that's going to be more of an uncomfortable one. I am still going to resist saying some of the things that I have heard. You've already heard them too, perhaps, involving threats of violence and very specific graphic things, which I am not going to share here. Um, but this is the environment that the United States is now living in and becoming. And it, in some ways, is inevitable because we have lived a very charmed life in this country for so long. And I put the word charmed life, in those two words in quotes, because it's not exactly that. But I mean we in general as a country, because a lot of us, particularly as black people, are not living any charmed life um, when it comes to living in this America. I mean, that ain't happening. Um, the oppression, the, the racism every day that you're facing from white people and anti-blackness from other people. I mean, you're getting that every day. Right. You're you know, you're being doubted. You're not being taken seriously. You know, white colleagues of yours don't take you seriously. You know, there's a great number of uh, many great many white people who don't take you seriously. You know, they they view you as a stereotype. They talk to you in a certain way. And talk to you in street lingo, complete strangers or otherwise who don't know you. And even if they have seen you around. They talk to you as, hey, what up? Like, like as if I, that's the language I speak in. And they wouldn't talk to a white person and go up to them, a fellow white person and go, hey, what are you doing? They wouldn't talk like that to them. But they will talk to us. Hey, what up, bro? What up, brother? Yeah. And you don't eat, you know, what, what, the, what the hell is that? And that's something about those white people who do that, who, you know, they can't face themselves. 
They don't care to have a concept. They don't care to have a concept of wanting to talk to people like the ordinary human beings that they are. And it, for them, I think it's, for some of them, for many of them, it's this way of trying to demonstrate a I'm better than you kind of attitude, you know? And so I'm going to talk down to you and I'm going to reduce you to this societal stereotype or something. And I don't value or respect you. So I'm going to talk to you like, hey, yo, brother, you know, and see you as a figment of my in, an invisible man, Ralph Ellison imagination. I mean, Ralph Ellison was writing about black men and women, I guess, figuratively in that way, who are seen as a figment by the white society and the white people in it. We are undergoing some serious times in this country and violent ones, openly violent. And it's not as if we haven't encountered this before. We've seen this throughout the history of this country, the enslavement of black people and the lynching of black people, the genociding of the Native American population. We've seen this. It continues. You know, and... We're seeing it again now. And this is the start, unfortunately. It is not the end. And this is one of the reasons why I have called for this inauguration to be moved. And I sure hope that the Biden inaugural committee was listening to me. And not just only me, but many people who have expressed deep concern about this inauguration next week, a week from today. Given what we've seen, the threats, the very extremely violent and graphic threats against people in power. I mean, it's just so much. I mean, I was listening to this uh, accounting yesterday and it was deeply uncomfortable to listen to. And that's why I'm sparing you of it. And it's not because I'm doing, you know, I don't want to sound like I'm being uh, paternalistic here. And I uh, definitely apologize for that in advance. Um, but I, I, I think that you get the picture. You've seen enough video and I have refused to watch most of these videos, but you and I have seen videos. We get the picture. Now, what are we going to do about it? Right. I think that when these networks that I uh, have been staying away from um, for these last few weeks, flood your zone, flood the zone with all of this stuff, it is extremely, extremely damaging to your nervous system. I think you can talk to the average scientist doctor who deals with epidemiology and deals with um, the nervous system and its reactions and epistemology, all these kinds of things, right, that are really important and the effects of stimuli uh, to the uh, hypothalamus in your brain and all these kinds of things. There's been so many studies and, and things done on all this and receptors, that keep us on a heightened state of alert, that, that produce these uh, chemicals in us. And then they make us uncomfortable. They make us perhaps contribute to depression and, and all these things, which is why it's important to take walks and have a life outside of watching TV like this, this kind of television. Although the impeachment stuff that's been going on and that went on today um, <laughs> is a must watch, of course. Um, of course, you know, focusing on the work that you may be doing from home, if you're someone who has 
the ability to do that from home is a distractor. But again, it's intensive. And staying off of social media every now and again, as I've said repeatedly, you will want to do that for your own mental health. And staying off watching CNN and MSNBC and all these corporate news media networks with 24-hour cable, Fox News. I hate to even mention them because that goes without saying, at least for me. Maybe, maybe people out there watch it. Maybe you are among them. But all I'm saying is, is that you need a break from this stuff. It's very, very oppressive in that way. It, it, or rather, I think the better word is assaultive. It is an assault on your senses. And into that breach steps this violence that we're seeing, that is being orchestrated, that's being threatened. People shouting, hang Mike Pence. And this has not happened overnight. This has been going on for a long time. Just last year, there was a effigy hanging of the Kentucky governor, Andy Bashir. There were photos of it plastered all over the New York Times. Some white guy with a string and an effigy of the Kentucky governor, a Democratic governor. Andy Bashir, you know, a photo of his face cut out, stuck onto this cardboard and a string around the neck and dangling from a tree. I kid you not. And then they asked Governor Bashir, well, what do you think, Governor, about this? And, you know, he kind of tried to pass it off and diminish it. But I assure you, he is very frightened as are so many others. Look at what happened with Gretchen Whitmer, the governor of Michigan last year. Look at the stuff that Donald Trump was saying about her during the summer of 2020. And then, hey, voila, less than four months later, boom. Officials today uncovered an attempt by at least 12 people, all white men, to kidnap and kill Governor of Michigan, Gretchen Whitmer. And then they detailed the graphic nature of the plot. They wanted to blow up bridges around her home and uh, on her way to her on the way to her home so that it would be difficult for people to access, for the police to access. You know, little did they know that there's something called a helicopter that can land. <laughs> God, dearie me. <sighs> But the point is, is that there was a plot to kidnap her, hold her at gunpoint, give her a trial. And what that means is a trial by shooting her to death. That's what that means. And then you've got Rudy Giuliani the other day talking about trial by combat. Come on, folks. Don't close your eyes to this. This was a news story for about two days. And then there was the reaction from Governor Whitmer herself, who got on television that afternoon in October of 2020 and said, yeah, this is the plot against me. She even wrote an article about it, I believe in The Atlantic. And it was entitled The Plot to Kill Me. I mean, that was literally the title of the article in The Atlantic. I'm going to try to dig that up and include it too, but you know, I, I don't know if I should include that article. It's from her though. I mean, maybe it is the necessary read. 
So, you know, and this is not, again, it's hardly the first time. That's why I kept saying to you earlier this week or last, why are people shocked that this happened last week? Why were they shocked? I mean, people just fall asleep on the news. They don't care anymore. What is it? Why are you, why are people, some people not shocked? This happened, right? This was something very serious. They've indicted and arrested these folks and they're going to try, try these people. Thank goodness. And it was thanks to intelligence um, and the FBI investigations and the state level investigations, speaking of institutions that we need to have working, right? And changing, but working. If those people decided, well, I'm not going to do this, then what happens? We are in a world of crap, doo-doo, caca, filth, dung. If those people decided, well, I'm not going to investigate, I'm not going to do my job. Bill Barr decided to do that. He's no longer the attorney general, but he chose not to do certain things or chose to do certain things. He chose to tell every single agency in the country that is a prosecutorial agency in the state of every country to try peaceful Black Lives Matter protesters as seditionists. Peaceful protesters. But how now, brown cow? What are you doing now, Bill Barr? I know you've left your post. But if you were in your post, would you be telling agencies around the country to charge these violent, terroristic white men with sedition? Granted, there's going to be thousands of arrests when all is said and done. They've arrested, what, 100 people now, I guess? There's going to be more, right? There's going to be, by the time we get to the end of January into February, you're going to be hearing about at least 1,000 people arrested, if not more. But that's not anything down to Bill Barr. That's down to the agencies and people in the FBI and other places in government who really do care about the work they do to the point that Tim Snyder is making. And so that's the key here. We need to have that. This violence, though, is becoming very, very clear and obvious to all of us. This ain't no Antifa. Antifa hasn't done a damn thing. This is all about right-wing violence. And there's a history of this where right-wing fascists, right-wingers do this, especially when they see a country changing around them. They're losing power. They're changing, right? This country is changing. Georgia, Arizona, Nevada, all places where Joe Biden won, which are, particularly in the case of Arizona and Georgia, Republican, reliable Republican winning states. And that's what they're reacting to, the dilution of the whiteness that's going. Whiteness as a system is still very much intact, thank you very much. Although I am not thankful for that. A system of oppression, intact, no thank. I'm not thanking anybody for that. But I'm being sarcastic when I say thank you very much. But what you're seeing now is this violence happen, threats. You've seen this for years. This has not happened overnight. Look at what happened to Congresswoman Gabby Giffords, shot in the head, pretty much near, you know, uh, you know, 20 feet away or whatever. This guy shoots her in the head. 
We have seen this happen before. We've seen political assassinations before. Abraham Lincoln, John F. Kennedy, I mean, come on. Grover Cleveland was severely hurt. RFK, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X, Medgar Evers, I can go on and on and on and on and on and on. You get the picture. This is, there's a whole long-ass history of that happening here in the United States. And a week ago today, it was very close to happening in multiplicity. It really was very, very close. There have been so many death threats now against Joe Biden and Kamala Harris and Mike Pence and Mitch McConnell. So many death threats. And this is going to continue to escalate. And that's the thing that is very scary. It is frightening. Not shocking. Not surprising. It's expected. And given the bloody and violent history of this country... I said this on Twitter last week, and it pains me to say it here. That there is going to be a time where these violent, terroristic people are going, these scumbags, they're not people, they're scumbags. These violent, vile criminals, there's going to be a time where it's only a matter of time where you learn of someone being killed who is in politics. And I hope to God I'm wrong. I really do. There has to be a stronger response and a stronger infrastructure in place because, my goodness, the last four years, it has been damaged. But look, Reagan started all of this. And even before Reagan, this was underway. And look, A system that was born into violence, that created violent oppression, that stood for and existed upon the backs of violent oppression, the backs of black people that it oppressed and enslaved, is a system that is bound to go down to defeat in that same manner in which it was born. And you're seeing that now. You are seeing that now. You had, again, I'm not going to mention her name because I I really don't want to give her the airtime. But that new member of Congress who ran a campaign with her Glock and ran that campaign and she won, right? Has been in Congress for about a week, just over a week. And she brought her Glock yesterday and took it past The metal detectors, she would not allow people to search. There's a magnetometer now. I can't believe there's not been a magnetometer, a metal detector in that building ever. Until now. Oh my God. We went on an honor system for 200 plus years after everything? And now finally you put a magnetometer in there? And you got Republicans, ooh, these Republican Congress people complaining. Oh my God. It's an attack on my personal freedoms to have a magnetometer in a, in a in a building where people were shot dead just a week ago. It's an attack on my freedom to have safety. I mean, this is really dangerous. And now, so you've got politicians walking in. It's bad enough you have politicians 
being subjected to open carry in Michigan and other state houses where open carry exists and allowing them to bring their loaded guns into the chamber. And I'm not talking the gun chamber. I'm talking about the legislative chamber. So you have two of those people who were involved in that plot to kidnap and kill the governor of Michigan standing in the legislative chamber with their guns just a few weeks before they were arrested. That is a system that is bound to collapse on itself. As Malcolm X said, the chickens of violence or the chickens coming home to roost. He said this after JFK was assassinated and that got him in some hot water with Nation of Islam leader Elijah Muhammad. And then he himself, Malcolm X, would be killed less than two years later, assassinated at the Audubon Ballroom. If a system of violence is birthed, then it is bound to go down that way. I mean, come on now. It's about reaping what people sow. And so, you have this violence now. And it's not been a surprise or a shock. It's been traumatizing. It's been frightening. It's been very scary and deeply disturbing. And again, media responsibility and how they report this stuff is one thing too. Flooding us with videos, while they are important, I mean, at some point... Anyway, I've already talked about that. But that's the thing, right? This violence now is a part of everyday American life. And we have been very numbed. You know, the coronavirus, you know, nearly 400,000 people have died and people now are numb. And that's where it's most dangerous. And then this violence happens and people are shocked. Some people are shrugging their shoulders, as Chuck Schumer said last week. Shrugging their shoulders. He knew, he said he knew of a friend of his who told him that his parents or his father, the friend's father, had shrugged his shoulders at five or six people being killed. Very dangerous place to be when you're shrugging your shoulders at what we saw last week. That is not even on the menu for anyone and should not be. And knowing that there were these marches on the capital, the state capital of Michigan and others, but particularly Michigan, last year, people were stunned and shocked by this. When there was hundreds of people flooding the state Capitol building in Michigan in Lansing with nooses, with Bobby dolls being hung, with very vile things being said about Governor Whitmer, misogynistic things, death threats. Come on, this has been in the works for a long time. It's been going on for hundreds of years. You cannot say, dear listener, that you didn't see this coming. And you also cannot say that there won't be more of this. Which is why I am so concerned about this inauguration. I want to leave you with these words from a Filipino scholar and I think former politician in the Philippines. And he was on Democracy Now! earlier in the week. 
and said some very wise things that I am really grateful for. His name is Walden Bellow. He has written a story, article that I'm going to link to. It's called The United States Has Entered a Frightening Weimar Era. The Weimar Republic, the ill-fated Weimar Republic of Germany, which was soundly uh, and roundly overturned once um, Hitler and company got into power. You know, overthrown. And uh, Germany then descended into the fascist authoritarian dictatorship that it was for 12 or 13 or 14 years or whatever, you know. I mean, Walden, W-A-L-D-E-N, Bello, B-E-L-L-O, has written this story. I'm going to link to it. It's called The United States Has Entered a Frightening Weimar Era. But rather than read this article out, I'd read, I will lead it, leave it for you. And I want you to listen to his words. Here's a snippet. It's about four minutes long of what he was saying this week to Amy Goodman on Democracy Now! And you can watch Democracy Now!, a very important program that I do um, reference as well sometimes when I talk about the media that you should be listening to. DemocracyNow.org. It's a daily program, Monday through Friday. Democracy Now! It can be found for free on DemocracyNow.org. Video and audio, whichever you prefer. Um talking about issues of the day and of the globe. You get global perspective and you also get progressive voices and other voices that you do not hear on your TVs, whether it be CNN or MSNBC, et cetera, et cetera. Here's Walden Bellow. And this is a really um, eye-opening, maybe disturbing to some of you, um, but nonetheless, very important four minutes that you should listen to. But... In 1973, you know, when you had a situation of political polarization, uh, the military came in and intervened in favor of the right. Now, what I'm saying here is that, you know, we should not underestimate or overestimate the strength of political institutions like civilian control of the military, you know, at some point, you know. Uh, you know, you know this. If if there's great political polarization that takes place, then you know those sort of principles begin to become more loose, and we should, you know, expect, you know, that there will be elements within the security forces, within the agencies of the state, that would say, hey, the civilians can't work it out, the political elite is divided. You know, we have to be the ones to stabilize the country and we stabilize it by eliminating democracy. Okay, so basically, this is the same thing that happened in the Philippines in 1972. Marcos basically said democracy is now stalemated. We have to move forward and therefore we have to declare an authoritarian regime. So. That's what I'm saying at this point in time, you know, that do not overestimate the strength of American political institutions because Trump has shown, you know, over the last four years how he could easily violate so many U.S. traditions. And, you know, and we have not seen the end of that, you know. I, in fact, I'm thinking at this point in time, you know, that since the demographic balance is 
going against, you know, the white population in the United States, since the political balance is going against the Republican Party. Uh, and we just saw, for instance, how Georgia, you know, and a number of other states, Arizona, have, you know, you know, to political mobilization, have gone over to the Democrats. We saw how the popular vote was won by Biden with over 7 million votes. So basically, the political electoral weight uh, is shifting over, you know, to the left, to the broad left, to, you know, the, you know, the, the to, uh, uh, you know, the, this coalition uh, of progressives, liberals, and minorities. And I think, given that, I think you should be expecting more street warfare being waged by the right uh, in the United States at this point in time. And I think this is something that people should just be prepared for because, if they can't win electorally, they'll win through trying to control the streets. And if that happens, then that creates the possibility or the opening for military intervention. You know, so I think the enter the U.S. In fact, I think is entering what I call the Weimar period, which is basically the the period of both electoral and street struggle and chaos that characterized the last days of the Weimar Republic and ended with the elevation of Hitler in 1933 uh, to the chancellorship. So, um, you know, of course, things may not happen exactly the same, okay? And, you know, we should always remember that uh, history never repeats itself in quite the same way. But at the same time, there are lessons that we should be taking, you know, from the rise of counter-revolutionary movements in the 20th century and in this century. And, you know, that the United States is not exempt from this. The United States is no longer the kind of exceptional society. The United States, as events have shown over the last few years, and especially the last few months and the last few days, is becoming more and more like the rest of the world. So this is the end of American exceptionalism. So there you are. You know, I mean, that's where we are. The United States has joined the world now. Finally, in having these violent interruptions. And it's sad, but it's the truth. And it is true that we have been the exception, as Walden Bellow says, but that's over now. That's over, you know? That is over. You're going to have a bunch of white men for the foreseeable future, criminal, violent, seditious, traitorous white men who are going to be doing this. You're going to see this. This is regular. I said this the other day. You're going to get what the English got in the 1970s and 80s with the, and perhaps before that, with the Irish Republican Army, the IRA. And I remember being in England, living in England back then, and, and the times that, because I'm from England, and the times that you would really be worried about when the next IRA bomb was going to happen. And then people, people do not put these things together. People do not put the dots together anymore. They don't connect them. 
What happened in Nashville a couple of Saturdays ago, I keep coming back to it. If you don't think that's part of what we're going to be seeing regularly in this country and that we have been seeing forever in this country, quite frankly, you are mistaken. We saw this in 1963, the bombing of four little girls in a church, the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama. We've seen this with church burnings. We've seen this with cross burnings. We've seen this with attacks on black people. What happened in Charleston, South Carolina, Mother Emanuel AME in 2015. We've seen this, this kind of violence and particularly white violence, white male violence, especially. Mass shootings, white men doing them. Sandy Hook, all these things. And we really do have to stay awake and open our eyes. And Walden Bello is telling you, you're going to have more of this on steroids, basically. That's me adding the on steroids part. But you heard what he had to say there. And it ain't reassuring. I think the only thing we can do is continue to educate people. Well, there are other things we can do. And be aware. Awareness is one of the greatest tools you know, be aware and be careful out there and, and recognize that this is a new phase. You're not going to get that in the corporate news media. They're not going to tell you that. Maybe one or two might. But this is a new phase for the United States. We're going to have a majority black and brown country very soon. And there are white men out here who can't handle that. And there are white women out here who can't handle it. You know, there was a, a white woman yesterday who, during the press conference of Chuck Schumer, the soon-to-be majority leader, who, because of COVID-19, has been taking press conferences outside on the street. And he was near Smith & Walensky, which is a famous steakhouse in New York. Um, it may be in other places, but New York it, it certainly is. And I believe it was whatever, the location was on the east side in Manhattan. And a woman off the street, white woman comes up to him, interrupts the press conference, and there's security there that, that intercede. She's about 25 feet away from him. And she shouts out in part, among other things in this rant, she said, I actually got sexually aroused when they did what they did last week. She's referring to the terrorist attack, that she actually got sexually aroused by it. And that is someone who obviously isn't all there to be, and I'm not being nice. Why should you be? But I do think that there are actually some people, a very small percentage of people who do get turned on by violence. I mean, isn't that what S&M is about to a degree? Well, I don't know. <laughs> but I mean, there's a difference between when you're playing a role and there's safety established in that context between the two of you. And when you're downright well, really harming somebody to the point of, well, you know, well, I don't even want to go there, actually. Use your imaginations. You have very fertile imaginations. 
but there are there's a fragment of the population that does does get off on that. I mean, I just think it's despicable, though. For people, that's different. And that may be different, excuse me. <clears throat> and that may be different from people. Um, that's obviously different from, and you can have your, obviously people have their views on that one way or another. That is different from this particular woman coming up to Chuck Schumer and saying out loud so everybody could hear it. I'm not going to play the audio of it. You can easily find that online and on social media. And she shouted that out. That she was sexually aroused by what these fascists did last week. When you've got that kind of atmosphere. And you've got what you saw last week. Anything goes. And that's what's so dangerous. That's what Walden Bellow was talking about in that clip as well. And we have to start coming to grips with this. A pandemic that. You know, none of these people who are presently in the White House give a damn about. That's another implicit thing that sinks in. That, well, it was 10,000, then 50,000, then 80,000, then 150, then 200, then 300, then 350, then 400. You know, people, then, then the implicit thing subconsciously for many is, well, what does it matter anymore? And as I said to you last week, this is what the Republicans are doing. They are trying to get you to think, what does it matter anymore? That's why they're openly doing what they're doing. So they normalize it with you. So that you have manufactured consent. They've tried to manufacture your consent. So that you barely blink when it happens next time. And you normalize it. It's become routine. That's the danger. We cannot allow it to become routine, even though it has for the last 400 plus years. When does the switch get turned on for you? When this continues to happen? That's the thing. Now you've got members of Congress who bring Glocks to the House chamber a week, less than a week, because it happened yesterday, less than a week after someone was shot right there in that very corridor where that congresswoman, that Republican, freshman congressman was, refusing to allow people to search her bag. You don't think that there's the potential for her or someone else to pull out that gun I'm not even going to go there, but you know what the rest of that sentence sounds like. You don't think there's a potential of that? On the House floor? Again, I don't want to really go any further than that, but anybody who's listening to me and who has any kind of semblance of an imagination knows what I'm thinking the rest of that sentence and knows what catastrophe leads to after that, right? I mean, I, again, I keep saying this. I'm surprised that there were not... This is the one thing I am surprised at, of anything. If I'm surprised about anything at all, is that there were not 
metal detectors placed in that building before. And of course, all the years I've been watching the House and the Senate, I've never actually seen them. I assumed that they were just in another entrance in the building, but they never showed cameras on it. They never pointed cameras to it. They don't have them. They never have these magnetometers. Maybe they do in some places, but we just haven't seen them for security or whatever. But they didn't have magnetometers to enter the chamber of the house? Good grief. That is the one thing that I am surprised at. And now, now you have upstarts who've been there for nine days, 10 days now, 10 days she's been there and now doesn't want to allow and refuses to allow the Capitol Police to search her belongings for the Glock that she has in there. Now, there now needs to be a penalty and a fine for all members or any member of Congress who refuses to allow themselves to be searched. This is, this is not a fascist thing. This is something that is entirely reasonable. The other day, the House voted to fine people who refused to wear a mask over their nose and mouth on the Senate or on the House floor or anywhere in the building. And, you know, that's the way it should be. Now, I'm sure if the Republicans ever get back to control the House again, and don't think that that's not possible in 2022, we'll see if the Democrats throw this all away since they lost a load of seats last year. And when Leslie Stahl questioned Speaker Pelosi, she got mighty defensive around things like this, particularly the stimulus stuff. But what if the Republicans take power again in the House in 2022, just next year, and they get elected? You don't think that they're going to overturn those rules about searches and about masks in a pandemic? You don't think they're going to turn? I mean, there are people even now who weren't weren't accepting masks yesterday. They didn't get on the House floor, though, but they didn't accept the mask. Marjorie Taylor Greene's standing there. And I mean, these people, are these are the people that you need to be worrying about. I mean, these people are seditionists. They're now in your government. They've always been in the government here and there over the, over the centuries. But now you've got 147 of them and counting. They are fast subsuming that party that is basically DOA now, the Republicans. They're DOA. And this isn't even about Donald Trump now. This is about the future of the country and certainly that party that is increasingly more openly fascist and tyrannical. These are the ones who have their guns. They don't want you to search. They did this, they did that. I'm telling you, this is a really dangerous moment. And, well, you know, this guy that I've been telling you about, Mr. Bellow here, he should be really listened to. I mean, Walden Bellow. You really should listen to that again, what he said. Because that is what has happened in lots of countries. And it is now to defy Sinclair Lewis and his book, It Can't Happen Here, is now happening here. Thank you very much for listening to this edition 
of the politocrat. I am Omar Moore. They say that Capitol security officials are warning lawmakers that thousands of extremist supporters of President Trump are planning to try to storm the Capitol ahead of President-elect Biden's inauguration. The entire Capitol complex is ringed by National Guard, by Metro, Metro Police, Metropolitan Police, and by Capitol Police. And hundreds of National Guard troops have bivouacced overnight inside the halls of the U.S. Capitol. 